Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The generosity of our members and friends is life-changing for young investigators, lung patients, and patient families. Donations made to the ATS will help to support our mission to fund emerging investigators in cutting-edge research, sustain education and public health initiatives, and reduce health disparities to advance worldwide respiratory health. If you would like to make a contribution to the ATS to help support our mission, please visit thoracic.org go slash donate. That's thoracic.org go slash donate. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Juliana Ferreira. I am an Associate Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Sao Paulo and a member of the podcast team here at Scholarly. Today, we'll be discussing the paper entitled Critical Care Education in a Pandemic Through Tele-ICU, published in ATS Scholar with our guest, the lead author, Dr. Nicholas Leveron. Dr. Leveron, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Is it okay if I call you Nick? Yes, of course. And thank you so much for inviting me, Dr. Feria. Okay, that's great. Nick, would you mind introducing yourself for our listeners? Sure. So uh, my name is uh, Nicholas Leveron. I am a chief medical resident currently serving for the IM residency program at the University of California in San Diego. Uh, I have recently matched into pulmonary fellowship, which I will be uh, in matriculating at the University of California, San Diego as well, uh, starting this this summer. And uh, I was very fortunate uh, to be able to work on this paper with my fabulous co-authors and, and everyone else. Oh, that's great news. Uh, so I'll meet you at ATS when, it, when it's live again at some point. <laughs> exactly. Okay, great. So let's, uh, let's uh, talk about your paper. Uh, can you tell us more details about the rationale of the study and particularly about the tele-ICU program? Was it envisioned specifically for the pandemic or was it a program that was about to be launched? Yeah, sure. So, so the tele-ICU program at UCSD was something that was sort of initially born actually back in 2017. Uh, UCSD was interested in increasing the amount of medical outreach that it was engaged in and they were seeking someone to champion tele-ICU efforts, uh, given the number of hospitals in the San Diego and Imperial County with limited critical care support. Uh, and so what they did is they hired one of my co-authors, Dr. Venkatesh Ramnath, who was working in Austin, Texas at the time, but who specialized in telemedicine and specifically tele-ICU. Uh, and that same year, he came and gave a grand rounds talk on the subject. And then once he was here, Venkatesh got to to work identifying hospitals affiliated with UCSD that would benefit from this additional critical care support through tele-ICU, um, but who might have various barriers, usually financial, uh, to getting you know, the on-site help and oversight that, that many places can, can benefit from. Uh, and so he initially approached a pair of hospitals in the Southwest healthcare system uh, in Temecula, which is just Northeast of, of San Diego proper. Um, and these, were smaller hospitals and one of which in particular was small enough that they were really only operating with about eight ICU beds and averaging about one admission a night. Um, so you can see how it'd be hard to support an in-house intensivist with that sort of like income. 
Um, so TelICU support was a perfect option for them with the cost being lower than an in-house intensivist and with the same degree of expertise, just you know, some slight differences. So they could always still pull someone in if things necessitated, but admissions consults and complex medical, critical medical care um, could be oversought remotely with the nurses and the overnight hospitals managing the hands-on work. So we started things there. They were extremely well received soon after initiation with the hospitals and nurses really feeling the support was beneficial to the patients and to the overall workflow of the hospital. So at the same time, the hospital that's in our study, El Centro Regional Medical Center, which I'll just refer to as El Centro moving forward, uh, uh, Dr. Remnath or Venkatesh was interested in establishing with this hospital because it's one of the the large, uh, the, one of the best affiliated hospitals with the UCSD system. Um, our residents and our faculty are, are very well versed with this hospital um, and interfacilitary care. And as a result, um, he was uh, interested in establishing a relationship with them with the tele-ICU model. Um, at the time, uh, El Centro had an open ICU and still continues to do so. Um, with the hospitalists managing many of the critical care needs. And if things extended beyond their comfort of scope of practice, um, these patients were typically transferred to larger medical, larger medical centers such as UCSD. So what really changed things and the actual trigger for this was the COVID-19 pandemic. There had not been an established contract between El Centro and UCSD prior to this, but with the it was, became very clear that the volume of ICU patients was going to increase immensely everywhere and that these community hospitals were we're going to be just as overwhelmed as the large academic centers, um, but may lack the depth of resources and staff and equipment, et cetera. So the concern extending beyond that was that transferring patients would no longer be a feasible option because these large referral centers would be overflowing with patients of their own. So in an effort to brace themselves for the coming storm, El Centro became suddenly immensely interested in the additional support that tele-ICU could provide. Um, so that, that contract got established between UCSD and El Centro um, and initially was uh, a tele-ICU support from 8 to 11 a.m., just 10 days a month, uh, where you have this intensivist on an audio video conference call that's sort of attached to like a wheel-bound camera, almost like the Mars rover, and is moving from patient room to patient room to discuss care with nurses, physicians, respiratory therapy, and other providers. Um, to give you a sense of the feedback from the hospital system at El Centro and its providers, within two weeks, this service and contract had been renegotiated um, for an additional hour. So for, uh, it, it was increased to 8 a.m. to noon and from 10 days a month to every single day uh, with additional extended time if acute issues came up that warranted intensivist expertise outside the hours. So um, it's been something that has been an opportunity, you know, in summary, it's been something that's been an opportunity for UCSD to uh, help local you know, community hospitals by providing a lot of its expertise, depth of knowledge um, and experience um, in a way that is a lot more cost affordable and can benefit the patients and the hospital systems and in a better way. So it looks like from, from my, what you're telling us that the timing was perfect because the program was just being developed and, and the idea was there. And as COVID hit, it was, it was almost ready to be to be put into action that's that's great it must have been must have been a, a great solution for El Centro as they try to cope with the surge of patients with COVID right yes it was we were very lucky that the uh, 
uh, groundwork was sort of already laid with these other hospital centri- uh, systems. And then when COVID hit, we sort of had, you know, a templated structure for how to approach this. We had a lot of the infrastructure in place. And then uh, we were able to just, you know, take that green light and, and go with it. Great. I have another question for you. You mentioned in the introduction of the paper that calamity leads to adaptation and innovation. That's actually my favorite sentence in the, in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 could, I couldn't agree more. Was that the case of, of innovation uh, when you decided to include residents in the tele-ICU program? And, and how was it initially received by residents? Were they hesitant to participate? Were they happy that they would be uh, able to uh, round in the ICU, even if it's tele-ICU? Yeah, so I, I would say that that was absolutely the case in, in this situation. Uh, we were very lucky in this learning opportunity because you know sometimes one of the biggest barriers to an educational intervention is just getting buy-in from your learners. Uh, but the calamity that is COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic, while it certainly introduced numerous educational barriers, it also did a lot of favors for specific types of education and patient care. Uh, telemedicine and virtual teaching as a result of the pandemic, it seems like evolved 100 years over in what is, was essentially a fortnight. And while there were initially, there initially had been a lot of trepidation towards these things for years. Now, when they were the safest, most feasible, and oftentimes the only option to preserve education and patient care, we invested heavily in them as a medical and academic society. So this was something where our residents were already interested to a smaller degree in these telemedicine and virtual teaching opportunities. But once the COVID pandemic came out, the importance of this, the the positive impact, the potential for growth really became apparent. And that buy-in was really exponentially increased. Um, So when we first had residents uh, rotate with our, you know, our our tele-ICU service, there's a lot of uncertainty about what to expect, you know, what can be done from a virtual setting that's critical care. You can imagine in a lot of places that critical care is, is seen as you know, that bedside, you know, bedside is sort of like the key component of, of, of providing that, that care in the, in the ICU setting. And so when you take that out, what's left over? And, and the answer is really that there is a tremendous amount that can be done um, remotely, from reviewing patient information, having these complex um, interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary conversations with care providers, uh, providing uh, consultant recommendations. And the wonderful thing about having video included on this stuff too is that you can still see the patient, you can see the ventilator, you can see the waveforms that are involved in, in each patient's care and directly react to them, see changes, and then uh, what the impact that those things have is. So uh, it's been a wonderful opportunity for our residents. And uh, even with that initial you know, potential trepidation, they've, they've really grown to appreciate it tremendously. Yeah, it's great that, that they, they were able to be involved and, and we'll talk about your results later, but it looks like they really loved the program. Uh, but before, before we go to the results, can you tell our listeners what was the research question of the study and briefly comment on the methodology used? Sure. So, so simply put, our, our research question was one that was twofold. So, so the first was, does tele-ICU benefit hospitals and providers without access to on-site intensivists? 
And, and secondly, is tele-ICU a good space to educate resident learners about critical care and providing care in resource limited settings? And really the way we chose to measure this was from uh, anonymous feedback from both the local providers. So this is like physicians, nurses, respiratory therapy, as well as the residents who were able to join our tele-intensivists virtually for their rounds. For the local providers, these were folks that were directly interacting with our tele-intensivists on a daily basis, co-managed care with their patients. We were interested in the response to some select high value features of tele-ICU, including the access to expertise, the ability to have a dialogue about patient care with a specialist, and things like smoothing out other opportunities like interfacility uh, transfer. Our survey information was collected after the first few months of starting tele-ICU with El Centro. Um, once we were in that stepped up phase where we were uh, engaging on a daily basis. For the resident side, uh, this was added as a component of our already uh, blossoming underserved medicine rotation uh, within the internal medicine residency program, um, which is available to all of our residents. Uh, and our residents would join for a full set of rounds twice over the course of, of a two week rotation on Thursday mornings. They have access to the EMR, they get one-on-one -on -one instruction tailored by an attending intensivist to their level of knowledge regarding patient care, resource access, and virtual communication skills. And another thing that's nice is that many of these tele-intensivists also work directly with our uh, residents um, in person at our UCSD hospital. So these are folks that they know pretty well, um, have a pretty comfortable uh, learner-mentor relationship with. And so what we were interested in knowing from these residents, of course, was the, the educational impact. We asked specific questions about the value of learned communication skills, the value of using telemedicine to lead interdisciplinary rounds, and of course, the appreciation of differences between providing care in a resource limited setting rather than their usual academic environment. So our survey information for, for these uh, was collected within a, a week of their time completing the rotation. That's, that's great. And, and can you tell us the main results? What did you find with the study? Sure. So we had a total of seven physicians, 10 respiratory therapists, uh, and about 10 ICU nurses at El Centro respond to our provider impact prompt. And when asked about what aspect of the tele-ICU program benefited them the most, about 62% said it was the access to expertise regarding mechanical ventilation um, and other critical care, you know, the, the core concepts within this, this subspecialty. 19% identified the ability to ask a critical care questions to an expert uh, directly one-on-one -on -one in real time. 8% argued it was the relationship allowing for smooth inner facilitary transfer and, and, and another, uh, the, the rest of the group identified something else entirely. With regard to feedback from our learners, we had six internal medicine residents from our UCSD's internal medicine residency program engage in this opportunity by the time we were writing up the study. And the response was a very positive one. The residents unanimously felt that the tele-ICU program improved their understanding of ICU care in resource limited settings, improved their ability to deliver ICU level care in these environments and enhance their evidence-based practice uh, regarding patients with COVID-19, which again, at, the, at this time was uh, of particular interest. And then most of our residents felt that their communication skills with multidisciplinary teams were also improved by this experience. And all residents reported they would be interested 
the educational benefits of this tele-ICU program again in the future. So we, we tried to be very specific with, with these questions and these uh, in particular for our, our resident responses, we gave them the option to sort of strongly disagree, you know, slightly disagree, remain neutral, strongly agree or uh, slightly agree uh, when it came to um, each of these sort of prompts and these components that we were interested in knowing more about. That's great. I think one of the things that I found most interesting about this study is the, the combination of a great success in terms of um, caring for patients. So assisting the, 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 the team in the El Centro Hospital and giving them the expertise that they, they obviously lacked in the sense that they, they felt they needed that and they, and they felt that the program actually um, provided expertise that they needed to care for COVID-19 patients, but also um, also was a great experience to residents. So I, I guess this is like the, the secret success for, not so secret, for, for, for ed any educational program, trying to combine uh, the, the, the need for improving care at the same time as providing great educational opportunities for learners, right? Exactly. And, and you, you've, you've touched upon that beautifully in the sense that there's the one last component that we're, we're sort of moving towards investigating for the future is, so we've got, you know, how, how do the providers and the local interdisciplinary teams feel about this? How does, it, how does it function as a learning opportunity? And then the last sort of piece of the pie that we're interested in for the future is, you know, how does this impact patient outcomes? Does this truly objectively improve quality of care? Uh, and what we're specifically looking at are things like, is low tidal volume ventilation being used for patients with ARDS? Are we proning folks when it's appropriate? Are we appropriately uh, performing other interventions that are done you know, exclusively in the ICU? And so that, that will sort of, I think, be the final point on our, on our triangle of information for whether or not this, um, whether or not this intervention can, can be called a, a complete success. Yeah, that's that's great. I well, we're looking forward to knowing uh, in the future. From, from from looking at the results of the survey with residents, it seems like they unanimously agree that they learned about the difference between caring in for patients in an academic center where they have access to a lot of resources versus caring for patients in limited sets uh, re limited resource settings. Was that one of the main educational goals for this rotation? You can kind of touch on on this point that this is this was already a rotation available for residents. But was this one of the main goals for this rotation? It really is. It's I would say it's the primary goal uh, for our underserved medicine rotation. And what I have to say is that medical education as a system in the United States has great potential for a broad range of experiences serving a wealth of diverse patients in varied settings. But it also has the potential to be a very narrow window into global medical care for those not exploring the greater world around them. It can be very easy to go from a large academic medical center for medical school to a large academic medical center for residency to a large academic medical center for fellowship and so on and so forth throughout your career. Um, and it can really color your perspective on things like what is normal and what is always available or even what is possible in other places throughout the world. When you always have consultants in every specialty for every type of surgery or malignancy or esoteric disease, when you have dozens of CRRT machines, ECMO, advanced procedural suites and equipment, it's, it's wonderful. 
but it can also run you the risk of learning to rely on things too heavily. So while UCSD is definitely a large academic medical center with every possible wonderful subspecialty skill or magical machine available to it, it's also dedicated to its surrounding community and looking for ways to support its affiliated hospitals beyond just accepting transfers. So that's how the tele-ICU program was born here. And in my opinion, one of the greatest benefits to it is that it can take students, residents, fellows, or even attendings who work in an academic medical center environment and open their eyes and their minds to, to care in a resource limited setting. It's not just the awareness that these places exist, exist, but the understanding of how they operate and hopefully even beyond that into thinking about what would I do if I didn't have access to this resource or to that particular intervention for my patients who need it? How would I manage? How would I help them? So I would say that that's really the biggest goal of this rotation and something that uh, UCSD as an institution is trying to um, broaden the perspective of all of its providers, not just those that are in dedicated training programs. Well, I, I find that very inspiring, you know, I mean, for, for places like Brazil, where I, where I work, uh, where um, inequities are really um, bigger than, than other places. So I work in a big academic center in Brazil, which has a lot more resources than other small places in Brazil. So I, looking at your, at, at your, um, your results and, and the goal of this program, I, I find it very, very important to be applied elsewhere, especially in places like middle income countries like Brazil, where where many of our residents uh, are trained in academic center, but then they will work in, in smaller hospitals or community hospitals where they actually don't have access to all of those tools that they used to have. So um, I, I think it's very, very important that they, we try in every city, whatever setting we are, we try to, to teach with everything we, we've got and, and show residents all the available resources, but also um, give them a perspective that, that that when this is not available, it's also possible for to care for patients in in a in a in a way that you provide um, excellent care. I agree. I can't understate the the importance of of broadening your own perspective on 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 things like that and being able to you know join the larger medical community without you know just being a part of your large academic center or your place that had, you know, your hospital with its, its resources and its, its opportunities. Great. And Nick, uh, how is the tele-ICU program now? Um, is, how many residents have been included in it? Is it still running? And, and are you planning on, on follow-up studies? Yeah, so uh, since our original five or six uh, residents included in the study results, uh, since then another, another dozen or so have been able to participate in the experience since it's been, it's been about nine months since then. Um, and the feedback has been consistent throughout. Um, still uh, all of those same you know, metrics that we used and mentioned previously uh, have been extremely well received. It continues to be a very well-loved rotation overall with a variety of different care experiences in which tele-ICU is just one, uh, of course, and, and now while our survey questions focus exclusively on the tele-ICU experience, um, so I can only speak to the feedback data regarding that, there are numerous other opportunities in our underserved medicine rotations um, that the residents get to enjoy. 
The Tel ICU program itself with El Centro currently is still uh, running strong. It's still going from uh, eight o'clock in the morning to noon with uh, intensivists each day using the, the uh, audio, video, teleconferencing, Mars rover-like device um, to see patients and work with the other teams. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, starting in July of 2020, there started being the opportunity for an in-house intensivist to supplement that care as well. So as, as numbers of COVID patients in particular increased dramatically over the holiday season, we uh, found that there were numbers of patients that were significantly outnumbering the number of beds in, in, in these hospitals. And so uh, we would have sort of split up groups of ICU patients where you would have the tele-intensivist caring for a group, you would have the in-house intensivist caring for another group, and then if there were folks that were a little lower acuity, then um, these would likely be directly cared for by, by the, uh, the hospitalists on site with maybe additional, you know, consultation help from the either the in-person intensivist or the tele-intensivist. Um, but it's continued to be a great uh, opportunity. Fortunately, these, those numbers have, 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 you know, calmed back down significantly since the, since the holiday season and uh, our, but our intensivists still continue to, to work there every day. They still continue to enjoy residents uh, on a weekly basis and uh, showing them just a little bit about what it's like to, to perform care through the tele-ICU format and in resource limited settings and the residents continue to, to really enjoy it. Wow, that's great. It's great to hear that it's um, up and running. I have another question for you. Uh, as the numbers of COVID continue to drop, and we hope that they, that they will continue to drop, um, do you plan on continuing the tele-ICU program and would the residents continue to be a part of it? I guess what I, I really want to ask you is if you think in your opinion that tele-ICU is one of those things that, I mean, it was there, but it was probably not very common, but if it's one of those things that will remain after we, we emerge from the pandemic and, and what implications of, of that for medical education? Yeah, so I think these are all questions that we're asking ourselves about a lot of different things, just as you were saying. But with regard to tele-ICU in particular, I think we're asking with a lot of optimism. We do plan to continue the tele-ICU program and its inclusion of residents as an opportunity for learning for the foreseeable future. There's no plan to cut back on that or reduce it. Uh, it's just such a unique experience with benefits in multiple realms. And there are a few experiences that can measure up in the same way um, that this one does. Now, as for tele-ICU remaining, once the pandemic finally starts to become a, a, a thing of the past, I, I would say absolutely. Just like you were saying, this is something that existed to a much smaller degree before the pandemic, but it, but it was a thing. Um, and the benefits are not exclusive to times of immense ICU overflow and crisis. The reality is that many hospital systems can't afford 24 seven in-house intensivist presence or they can't recruit to their location for various reasons. Until ICU allows us to help mend the limitations presented by lacking access to intensivists by providing their experience and expertise remotely and for a lower cost. So hopefully the future will see even more of this spanning international borders uh, to even the most remote healthcare locations where there is a need for intensivist care. 
but that's another mountain to climb in the future with local, national, international policy, language barriers, resource nuances beyond what we're experiencing here between between UCSD and its partnered hospitals. But it's but it's a great goal to aim for moving forward. And then, what are the implications for medical education? I, I would say that. I think that we have the luxury of getting to cherry pick the educational tools and skills we gained from the pandemic while simultaneously tossing out the ones that don't don't continue to benefit us. So virtual learning, tele-ICU, these things are here to stay. What I think is most interesting about the future is getting to see what we choose to use both educationally and for patient care once we have the option again of doing anything we'd like. I, I think that we'll find that an impressive percentage of conferences, teaching opportunities, medicine, and of course, ICU care will actually still remain virtual because in those spaces, for whatever reason, it makes the most sense. Well, that's, that's great. I, 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 I second your, your opinion. I hope that we, I, I agree it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to be able to um, keep whatever we found uh, useful and, and, and actually better in some cases. So uh, being able to have um, rounds with, with people participating from, from different places, we have in my institution, we have a journal club where we would mm -hmm. just uh, be with our fellows, but now um, fellows who left the service, who uh, uh, graduate from our program sometimes join so there, there are benefits of some of those things, and and I think it's a, it's a, it's great to be able to keep whatever we found useful, but also of course resume face-to-face um, -face patient care, uh, being in, in the ICU uh, and performing procedures at the bedside. Of course, we will never uh, have a, a perfect substitute for that, but it's it's great to be able to combine. I guess. A hybrid will be a very common word in, in the near future. I, I definitely agree. Just like it, just like how it has become for for motor vehicles, I think that we're moving moving towards that hybrid style of education as well. Uh, okay, Nick, it was great having you here uh, at Scholarly today. Thank you so much. Of course, it's you know thank you again for inviting me. It's been my absolute pleasure to speak with you and uh, talk a little bit more about this paper and. Uh, I'd just like to additionally thank all of my, my co-authors for all their help and support in uh, putting this thing together and uh, pioneering this, this, this initiative. Great. And, and I wish you a very, very nice uh, beginning as a fellow in pulmonary and critical care. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm greatly looking forward to it. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at hsjournals.org slash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.